Section 20 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5. The Religious Conflict Merged in the Great War. Part 2. The political doctrines imputed to the Jesuits excited even more misgivings and mistrust than their speculations on the central mystery of moral theology. Lyonnais had at Trent insisted on the theory, subsequently developed by him in several books, that while the papacy derives its authority from direct divine institution, the power of princes emanates from and is therefore in the last resort subject to the sovereignty of the people. The right of the spiritual authority to bridle the temporal, which Lyonnais deduced from this contrast between their sources, was extended by Bellarmine to the case of heretic as well as orthodox princes. These principles were consistently elaborated in Mariana's book De Rege e Regis Institutione, not published till after the accession of Philip III to whom it was dedicated. As to the relations between prince and people, the theory here adopted is the familiar fiction of a contract between them. As to the relations between prince and church, he is bound to support her privileges, but the church is not in return bound to bear with him if, as a tyrant, he ruins the commonweal or brings religion into contempt. Should he act thus, the people is entitled in the last resort to treat him as a public enemy, and individual members of the commonwealth may come to the rescue of the whole. Thus Mariana approves of the assassination of Henry III of France by Jacques Clément, whom he praises as resembling the heroes of antiquity. The substance of Mariana's theory was broached as early as the 15th century, when it was explicitly condemned by the Council of Constance. Views not unlike it were expressed by Calvin and gained ground accordingly among the French Protestants, while its practical consequences were approved by Pius V in the case of Ridolfi's plot, and of Sixtus V, in the case of Henry III's murder. Moreover, the theory has been denounced by many Jesuit, as it has been held by many non-Jesuit authorities. Still, the question remains open, whether or not Mariana's teaching was in general accordance with the principles of his order and formed a necessary development of the views of Lainess and Bellarmine. Aquaviva is asserted to have condemned it, but there is a good deal of reservation in his extant declaration. Nor, in truth, could he well have afforded to treat the subject as settled, or have done more than insist, as he did, upon the proper supervision of every doubtful publication on the subject. On the other hand, the elaboration of the doctrine of justifiable tyrannicide indisputably interfered with the progress of the Catholic reaction in countries where a Protestant or a Catholic suspected of Protestant leanings, sat on the throne. In France, Mariana's book was prohibited by the Parliament of Paris after Henry IV's murder in 1610, though the Queen Regent suspended the decree. In England, the enforcement of the oath denying the Pope's right to authorize the deposition of kings led to a split among the Roman Catholic clergy, to which Paul V sought to put an end by a declaratory brief in 1606. After, in 1610, 
Bellarmine had fully elaborated the conclusion that the Pope possesses the power of releasing the subjects of temporal princes from their allegiance and transferring it to some other quarter. King James I of England himself descended into the arena. One thing at least was clearly demonstrated by the famous controversy which ensued, namely, Rome's real want of foothold in England, notwithstanding all the efforts of the advanced guard of the papacy. It may be noticed in passing that Clement VIII in 1599 declined to entertain a proposition for the canonization of Ignatius Loyola. But the papacy itself seemed no longer able to sustain the movement of the Counter-Reformation at its previous height. Clement VIII, 1592-1605, was by no means unsuccessful in his praiseworthy attempts at making peace between the kings, Vervon, 1598, but he was content with adjusting where his predecessors would have claimed to arbitrate. In matters religious, he sought to maintain the purity of the faith by the customary methods. The Inquisition was by no means inactive at Rome during his reign and immolated a few heretics, one of whom, as it seems no longer possible to doubt, was Giordano Bruno. But under Clement VIII, a lower tone once more begins to characterize the whole system of government and life at Rome, though he did what he could to maintain some of the reforms of Sixtus V. The Vatican swarmed with nepoti, and nearly two-thirds of the sacred college were pensioners of foreign courts. Well pleased with an acquisition long coveted by the papacy, that of Ferrara in 1598, Clement in his later years when the great jubilee of 1600 lay behind him, showed little disposition to carry on the religious movement aggressively. He refused to have any part in the attempt of Charles Emmanuel of Savoy to escalade Geneva, the citadel of Calvinism in 1601, and in vain exhorted the English Catholics, rendered desperate by apparently interminable injustice, to refrain from such remedies as sedition and conspiracy, 1604. Yet when, after the brief pontificate of Leo XI, Medici, Paul V, Borghese, was seated in St. Peter's chair, 1605-21, to a change seemed once more to come over the spirit of the papacy. The new pope seemed, as it were, transformed by his election, in which, having contributed nothing to the result himself, he saw the finger of God bidding him follow the examples of the most conscientious and the most zealous among his predecessors. Nor should it be forgotten how mighty a position the Church of Rome now occupied through the successful activity of the Catholic and more especially of the Jesuit missions in the New World and in the remotest regions of the Old, in the East Indies, China, and Japan. At the very time when in Europe... Catholicism was preparing for a final struggle against the Protestant revolt, the idea arose of a reunion under the papal supremacy of a whole series of eastern churches between the Indus and the Euphrates with the Church of Rome, and to this lofty dream neither Philip III of Spain nor Paul V himself remained strangers. At home Paul V consistently, though without harshness, exacted from both bishops and clergy a rigorous fulfillment of their duties. At the same time, without shaping his foreign policy in subservience to either France or Spain, 
he set about the restoration of the authority of the church where it seemed to have been impaired, beginning with certain ecclesiastical grievances in Spain and in Genoa. These successes increased his ambition to an extraordinary degree, and before the first year of his pontificate was ended, he had become involved in a serious quarrel with the Republic of Venice, which had recently reenacted, together with a kind of Mortmain statute, a law requiring the assent of the temporal authorities to the opening of new churches, and had asserted the jurisdiction of the state over criminous ecclesiastics. Paul V replied to these rather high-handed proceedings by threatening to place Venice under an interdict, unless within twenty-seven days these laws were repealed and the imprisoned ecclesiastics given up, April 1606. Venice, not for the first time in her history, exposed to the papal thunder, stood firm, and the interdict descended upon doge, seigneury, and city. The clergy, under the orders of the state, continued to perform their spiritual functions and to administer the sacraments. Where there was hesitation, more or less a pressure was effectually applied, and the Jesuits, who refused submission to the civil authorities, were summarily expelled from the territories of the Republic. Hereupon, the literary champions of Rome, headed, of course, by the Jesuits, set in scene a futile blaze of indignation, in which, after the efforts of their Bergamesque printing press had been met by the great Venetian publicist and patriot, Fra Paolo Sarpi, Cardinal Bellarmine himself took part. But it did not suit Henry IV of France to allow the conflict with Spain to break out on this issue, for he had no wish that the goodwill of the Pope should be secured to Spain beforehand. Moreover, Spain herself was too much impoverished to be willing to enter suddenly into war. Thus, through the mediation of Cardinal Joyeuse, a pacification was patched up between the Pope and Venice in 1607. The imprisoned clerics were indirectly given up to the Pope, an assemblage of absolution was supposed to have been pronounced, but the obnoxious laws were not repealed, nor were the Jesuits recalled for half a century to come. The weakness of the papal authority, even on the Italian side of the Alps, had been unmistakably exposed, and rumor represented Rome as reduced to employing the assassin's dagger by way of counter-argument to the state theology of Venice. What if the Republic, still a great name if no longer a great power, were under Sarpi's guidance altogether to throw off its allegiance to the Church and to become Protestant? Such thoughts accorded only too well with the eager aspirations of eager Protestants like the Huguenot, Duplessis Mornay, and his friend Sir Henry Wootton, the diplomatic agent of England at Venice nor probably was Frau Paolo's own attitude on the subject of a purely negative character. But it was again Henry IV who declined to hasten a disruption of the church in Italy, and preferred tentatively to resume his scheme of a union of the Italian states. Paul V, though his reign lasted for nearly fourteen years longer, never again allowed his zeal to outrun his discretion, as it had in the Venetian imbroglio. He maintained the papal claims in theory and humored the Jesuits in their theological controversy with the Dominicans, but the spirit of combat had passed out of him, and instead of re-establishing the papal supremacy in Europe, or even in Italy, 
he founded the fame of the Borghese family as the most splendid patrons of art at Rome. Enfeebled at its center, the movement of the Catholic reaction still seemed in more remote regions to follow a well-established impetus. This was the period in which the Catholic Church regained her ascendancy in Poland under Sigismund III, in which the same prince, with the same thorn in his foot, Malaspina, sought to reintroduce Catholicism into Sweden, in which Rome and her Jesuit vanguard actually founded hopes upon the enterprise of the first false Demetrius in Russia, 1605-6. But these were merely operations on the outskirts. After the overthrow of the great plan of Philip II, it seemed for a time as if the renewal of the religious conflict must inevitably take the shape of an assault upon the European ascendancy of the House of Habsburg under the leadership of Henry IV of France, the last and not the least successful of Philip's adversaries. But Henry was determined before and above everything to rally the whole French nation round his throne, and to effect this even at the risk of offending his old Huguenot associates and disappointing his most trusted counsellors, he made concession upon concession to the Church of Rome. His marriage with Maria de' Medici, 1600, was followed by the recall of the Jesuits into France, 1604, and no obstacle was placed by his government in the way of a religious movement which recalls some of the most attractive features of the earlier stages of the Counter-Reformation. Great activity manifested itself in the religious orders of both sexes, many of which were reformed largely under the influence of the Spanish movement identified with the name of St. Teresa, some putting out fresh shoots as did the Cistercians in the Foyon, who were ultimately, under Clement VIII, constituted a distinct order. No name was more prominent in these endeavors than that of François de Sales, afterwards canonized, 1567-1622, a mystic with whom fervor of feeling took the place of subtlety and perhaps of depth of thought. In conjunction with the pious Baroness de Chantal, he founded the female order of the Visitantins, 1610, modeled on that of the Ursulines, which had come into France from Italy, where it had flourished under the protection of Cardinal Borromeo. François de Salle, when charged with the task of re-Catholicizing the district of Chablais, of which Charles Emmanuel of Savoy had, in 1594, despoiled the Genevese, had displayed extraordinary energy, being credited in a papal bull with having made 72,000 converts, and in 1602 he had been appointed Bishop of Geneva in Partibus. Of hardly less importance were the labors of Vincent de Paula, a native of Gascony, 1576-1660, the founder of the Priests of the Mission, confirmed by Louis Thirteenth in 1627 and by Urban VIII in 1631. Afterwards, from the great Paris priory assigned to their use, known as the Lazarists, and in conjunction with Louise de Gras of the Sisters of Charity, known as the Grey Sisters, 1634. He had been introduced in the sphere of home missionary work, in which he accomplished so much, by Pierre de Berulle, a kind of intermediary between France and Spain in the work of the great Theresean reform. Henry IV was thus pursuing a cautious religious policy at home, 
but continuing at the same time to carry on his designs for the extension of the influence of France both in Italy and among the German Protestants, whose union, 1608, was greatly in his favor, when his career was cut short by the knife of the Fouillon, Ravaillac, May 14, 1610. His widow, Maria de' Medici, now regent of France, did her best to preserve the public peace, but the principle of national unity represented by Henry suffered very palpably by his death. The great Huguenot lords began to claim extended securities, and the Guises once more sought to lay hands upon the helm. The double marriage treaty with Spain in 1612 implied a Catholic political alliance. Once more, monarchical and clerical ideas and interests were in unison, while the Sorbonne, led by Edmund Richer, strove to uphold the liberties of the Gallican Church. No alliance was, however, effected between the national section of the clergy and the Huguenots, who relied chiefly on the heads of the great houses, Bouillon, Rouen, Soubise, Sully, and were by them once more carried in the direction of that aristocratic decentralization which, under Henry IV, the genius of France seemed to have abandoned. End of section 20.